slightly differently from normal. It's a very long passage, so I've decided to break it into three bits. I'm going to, and we'll go backwards and forwards a few times. So hopefully it'll ring the changes and keep you awake. Um, the major theme which runs through the whole passage is the church. Now, to help us begin to think about this, before we read the passage, I'd like to ask what image comes into your mind when I say that word, when I say church? What image comes into your mind? Perhaps something like this. A nice church with a spire, a bit like St. John's, actually, in layout, maybe, spire. Or maybe this one, blue sky, nice tree next to it. Or how about that one? Sarah and I visited that one last Tuesday. It's the smallest church, parish church in England, Culbone Church, 35 foot long. So it's 10.7 meters in new money. And it's a tiny little church tucked in a little valley in, in uh, Somerset. Uh, maybe your focus is not so much on the building. What about the bricks and mortar? What about this? Is that what you think about when, when we say the word church? Lots of people standing there and lots of people up front, in, in this case in red robes. Or what about this one? Maybe that's more you with arms in the air and, and a bit more excitement and the Holy Spirit there. What do you think about when we say the word church? Contemplation. Calm. Reverence. Worship. Stillness, unity, fulfillment, harmony, relationship, satisfaction. Do be thinking about this as we hear what Revelation 11 has to say about the church. Recall also that Revelation is full of graphic imagery and symbols which are to be interpreted and understood as representing various points, pretty much all of them, not literally. So David, can I ask you to please bob up and uh, read off first? John writes, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want.
Thank you, David. So for this part of our passage, I've picked three main headings, the temple and the holy city, the 42 months, and the two witnesses. Recall that in this uh, passage, we are in the interval between the sixth trumpet, which was sounded at the, in the second half of chapter 9, and the seventh trumpet, which will be sounded at the end of this, uh, this one is seeing, focuses on the church. John is instructed to use the reed that he's given to measure the temple of God and the altar and its, with its worshippers. Now, this cannot mean measuring a new physical temple as the temple has been superseded by the Lord Jesus Christ. So this must be a symbolic temple. Recall also Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, where he tells the Gentile Ephesians that in him, that is in Christ Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Also, Peter makes this clear in his first letter. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So these verses introduce John's vision about the church, God's living temple in which he dwells. Notice the reference to the inner court of the temple, which is to be measured. And the implication of this is that God cares for and protects his church, which is measured, and has appointed a limited time during which part of his church is persecuted by the world. And that's represented by the Gentiles in this text. The use of the phrase holy city in verse 2 helps us to see this, as later on in chapter 21 of Revelation, it's, it's described, the holy city is described as the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So this is clearly God's church. The temple and the holy city are God's church. The trampling of the outer court of the temple is permitted for 42 months. So we need to do some arithmetic here. That's three and a half years. And also, if you take a 30-day, standardized 30-day month and multiply that up, that's 1,260 days. That's also known as a time, times, and half a time. That is one plus two plus a half is three and a half. Uh, and so that phrase comes from the book of Daniel. It's mentioned in Daniel 7 and also in Daniel 12. There are various incidents in the history of God's people when they suffered a period of intense persecution for a period of about three and a half years. A couple to mention, for example, the drought in Elijah's time, if we are also between the Maccabeans and Antiochus Epiphanes IV, which happened around 167 BC. The symbolism which John is using here refers to a period of intense suffering and persecution followed by victory for God's people. Given the context between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, as I mentioned, it almost certainly refers to the period between Christ's first coming and his second coming, during which the church is exposed to the hostility of the world. 
So the 42 months symbolizes that time during which the church is subject to hostility from the world, and that is society which is organized apart from God. And my third point is also about uh, the two witnesses. John is told about the two witnesses who God will appoint to prophesy for 1,260 days, and they're clothed in sackcloth. These two witnesses, again, must represent God's church. Two is necessary for their testimony to be valid under Jewish law. They're clothed in sackcloth, which is the prophet's clothing. And they're following, they're following various descriptions which reinforce that these witnesses are Christ's church. Let me just walk through the descriptions. They're called the two olive trees, the two lampstands, them, if anyone tries to harm them, and that fire devours their enemies. The witnesses have the power to shut up the heavens so it won't rain for the time that they're prophesying. And they've also got power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Let me just go through these descriptions and try and piece them together. The description of the olive trees, the lampstands, and standing before the Lord of earth looks back to Zechariah chapter 4, where the Lord chose Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the king descended from David that they are God's witnesses to the world as they rebuild the temple. Lampstands has also been used earlier in Revelation 1 to describe Christ's church. The seven churches are uh, a parallel with the seven golden lampstands. The fire coming from the two witnesses looks back to 2 Kings chapter 1, where God's prophet, in this case Elijah, called down fire from heaven to consume his enemies power to turn water into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague looks back to the plagues against Egypt, which Moses used to demonstrate God's power and authority to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, and indeed to the whole world. So God's church, in the same way that the prophets Moses and Elijah were able to as God's witnesses, only in the church's case, the judgment is through the words of the gospel spoken to those who will not repent. In the church's case, rather than physical punishment, the gospel brings down God's judgment on the last day when the thoughts of everyone's hearts will be revealed. Jesus himself explained how this judgment works to those who ignore his words and we find this in John's Gospel, chapter 12. Let me just read a few verses from chapter 12, verse 47. Jesus is speaking. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. So Jesus' very words give us the authority and power as his church to witness to him and to share his gospel with everyone. So in summary, the two witnesses are Christ's church, carrying out its appointment and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything he has commanded us. Okay, let's look at the next part of the passage, David, please. Thank you.
Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. At that very hour there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. Thank you, David. Uh, for this passage, I've picked three main headings. The death of the witnesses in the great city. Second one, the resurrection and ascension of the witnesses. And third one, the earthquakes. So here, we see that once the testimony of the witnesses is finished, the beast from the abyss attacks the witnesses, overpowers them, and kills them. The detail is pretty graphic as we hear of the bodies of the witnesses lying in the public square of the great city, people from every tribe, language, and nation come to gaze on the witnesses' bodies and refuse them burial. Not only this, they gloat over them and send think a bit about what the great city represents, and we also need to think through some of the graphic symbols which John sees. The city is interesting. It's described as a great city, figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also the witnesses' Lord was crucified. So, is it Sodom? Is it Egypt? Is it Jerusalem, where the Lord Jesus was crucified? Is it somewhere else? In John's day, the great city would have been Rome, the origin of all imperial rule and power. Jerusalem would represent all who opposed Jesus and crucified him on the cross. Sodom is described in Genesis as a place of evil, deserving of God's judgment. Egypt is historically the enemy of God's people, an unreliable ally and representative of those who oppose God. This proliferation of symbols, ideas, and names suggests that the great city represents the whole of society as organized apart from God, that is, all human civilization in hostility to God. As we look at this account, it's important to consider the timing. Note that once the witness's work is complete, then God allows them to be overpowered by the beast from the abyss. 
once his witness to the people of Israel was complete. In the same way, once the church's witnesses, witness to the world is complete, Satan will be allowed to overpower and kill her. Not only this, but also the witnesses are treated with the greatest contempt and indignity. No burial, lying in the public square for three and a half days, gloating over the witnesses' death. Celebration of the demise of the church marked by present giving to one another. At this stage, it looks like the church has been utterly and completely defeated and extinguished. So the death of the witnesses in the great city speaks of the apparent defeat of the church by Satan and all of human civilization organized apart from God. But then, the completely unexpected resurrection and ascension of the witnesses takes place. By God's spirit, his breath enters the bodies of the witnesses and they stand up. Those who thought they'd been killed are terror-struck. The reference to breath of life from God entering the witnesses recalls the spirit of God giving life to the dead bones in the valley in Ezekiel chapter the Holy Spirit. After the resurrection of the witnesses, at God's command, they're raised up to heaven in a cloud as their enemies look on in wonder. The parallel between the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus on the third day and his ascension into heaven and this vision which John sees is clear. What happens first to Jesus will also happen to his body, his faithful witnesses, the church. The lesson to draw from this is that God will not abandon his church, but he will raise her and vindicate her in the sight of all who oppose her. Victory will be ours, even if the opposition and persecution seem to be successful, and God resurrects his church and takes her to be with him. After this, there's a description of the earth experiencing a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city being destroyed. 7,000 people are killed and the survivors give glory to God. An earthquake is often mentioned when God is about to reveal himself. For example, in Exodus 19, the whole of Mount Sinai trembled as the Lord God descended on it. 1 Kings 19, when the presence of God is about to pass by Elijah, there's an earthquake. Also, the mention of the too late, that the gospel of Jesus is true. All of these signs and events point to the imminent consummation which God is about to bring to completion as the seventh trumpet is sounded. David, the final part, if you don't mind. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was 
because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints, and those who reverence destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Thank you very much. Only two headings for this section. The consummation of the kingdom of God and God's temple opened. As the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, John sees the completion of God's purposes through the world coming under the rule of God's Messiah, King Jesus. Jesus will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders, who John first saw back in chapter 4, fall on their faces and worship God, giving him thanks for his great power, and that he has taken this and begun to reign. Note that God does reign today, as we see from Psalm 93, and yet in this present evil age, his reign is contested and opposed by evil powers, and all who seek to rage against the Lord and against his anointed, the Messiah, after the seventh trumpet is sounded, all this raging will cease and God's reign will be absolute and uncontested. The response to this will be worship and praise from all God's faithful people everywhere. Note that God is described as the one who was and who is. No need for the is to come bit because that's happened after the seventh trumpet has sounded. This will also be the time for God's servants to be rewarded. God's people will be vindicated and the blood of the martyrs will be avenged, which is appropriate because of justice, the need to ensure justice and that justice is implemented. Finally, John sees a vision of God's temple in heaven and the Ark of the Covenant, accompanied by the signs of God's presence, including flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. Again, this must be a symbol of God's presence, as the temple has been superseded by the church and God's people. The important points to note are the opening of heaven and God's temple, which underline access to God by his people, and the judgment on and elimination of all who are. So what are we to make of this chapter? What does it have to teach us to, uh, today in 21st century Southbourne here. Let me offer just a few pointers. Uh, firstly, we should be encouraged to maintain a faithful witness here and now. John's vision is a graphic representation of the truth that God is bringing all things to completion and will certainly establish his uncontested reign in the new heavens and the new earth. In the process of this, there will be much noise and opposition. We shouldn't be surprised that people in our society find our views on sexual ethics to be repressive 
and restrictive. People will find our attitude to gender and self-determination to be unacceptable and to be behind the times. People will live together, have children outside marriage, and we be surprised to hear that this is not what the church approves of and thinks to be the right approach. None of these points should take us by surprise or shock us. After all, these are just symbols of the opposition to God's word and his rule. This passage has underlined that each of us should expect from this world uh, what, what each of us should expect from this world. That is, society organized apart from God. Let's not waver or try to find a middle way or a compromise. Let's be clear and faithful witnesses as his church, sharing the truth to any who will listen and calling to repentance all who will humble themselves and seek forgiveness through Jesus Christ. We should also not be surprised when evangelism is tough going or seems to yield modest or perhaps minimal fruit. Again, this chapter warns us not to expect to be in the majority. Sometimes when we organize an outreach event or approach friends who do not yet know the Lord Jesus, we can be shocked that the truth we're sharing is not welcomed with open arms and embraced. Why is it? that so many are resistant or opposed to the gospel message? Why does it appear to offend so many? Why are people so cold to the opportunity to hear God's truth? Again, the graphic images which John sees are clear in that society as organized apart from God will generally find the gospel to be objectionable. Some will look down their noses and talk about Christians needing crutches, some will react strongly, as if they were being tormented by the gospel message. But sadly, some who we share the gospel with may feel that we are tormenting them with truth from the Lord Jesus. And the third pointer is that, that we shouldn't be surprised if the church's impact on wider society seems to be modest or minimal. I think it's possible to think that that uh, the church will be successful in radically reforming our wider society and having a major impact on our culture and our country. Perhaps even whole continents will be changed as the gospel ripples through parts of the world where it's largely unknown or little known. We should not be surprised that God's truth does not seem to change the hearts and minds of many who hear it. The reality is that there is massive opposition to truth out in the world today. The noise coming from the internet, where everyone can shout and tweet and object, underlines that we are to expect opposition from the world. However, despite all these applications, the main truth to bear in mind from today's passage is that God does conquer all opposition. And he holds everyone to account. And the Lord Jesus does take up his place as king of kings and has to say. God will reign forever and ever. And his servants, the prophets, and all who revere God's name, both great and small, will receive their reward. So let's be faithful and persevere, doing all the good works which the Lord Jesus has prepared in advance for us to do. 
with gladness in our hearts and all the energy which God's Holy Spirit so powerfully works in us for God's honor and glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the truths which we learn from this passage. Make us a people who are faithful and who persevere despite opposition. Give us a right view of what it means to be your church, your faithful witnesses here among all we meet. Give us determination to reach out to all who will humble themselves and repent. Show us how to do those good works which you have prepared for us to do and give us the courage and determination to do them to the best of our ability. We ask this for the honor and glory of our risen and ascended Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.